I can only imagine what uh, Paul must have felt like when he said these words over in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 5. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 5, he is speaking here, first of all he's speaking of Christ, and he says, in that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of, a, of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remains unto this present. But some are fallen asleep, some have died. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not me to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. You know, I look at these words here, where he says, I am the least of the apostles. I am not meet. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because of something that I did a long time ago. Because of the mistakes of the past, sins of the past, I don't even deserve to be in this position. And if it were not for the grace of God, you know, I, I would not be what I am today. I am what I am by the grace of God. I imagine that when Paul wrote these words, that in his mind, in Paul's mind, that he could still hear the screams. He could see the faces. He could remember the ironclad conviction of those he would haul away to prison or as another Christian was hauled away into prison, another defeated Christian, maybe he thought in his mind. I think about the martyrdom of Stephen as he held their clothes, as they stoned him, was ingrained in his mind that this, this actually, what had happened was there in his mind and he couldn't erase it. There was no way of getting that out of his mind. You know, they actually say that there is a chemical process called epinephrine. Epinephrine is secreted into the bloodstream and it locks an image into your mind. Any heightened event, uh, anything that involves excitement, uh, if you ever had a car accident or, or something that was very beautiful, like a wedding, the reason you remember that is because epinephrine is secreted into the bloodstream and it locks those images in your mind. They say the same is true with uh, pornography, viewing pornography, that the reason those images are always in the mind and you can't seem to get them out is because it is a heightened event and epinephrine is secreted into the bloodstream, and those images are locked in your mind, just like a picture that's taken for a lifetime. And I imagine that this event, where Paul persecuted the church, was locked into his mind for a lifetime. I think what Paul maybe was, experienced was some, experiencing was something that a lot of God's people experience in his church. And maybe sometimes we experience this when a loved one dies. We experience this dilemma. And that is where we say, we think about all the things that we could have done, should have done, all the things that we should have said, all the right words that we didn't say, but we should have said, and all the many things that we should have done. I think we experience this dilemma sometimes. When guilt arises, we feel guilty. We experience this dilemma, the same thing that Paul was experiencing. Most of the time we experience this dilemma when our behavior of the past has in some way hurt someone 
especially someone that we love or someone we should have loved. It's been said that 75% of all mentally disturbed people would be pronounced well if they could be convinced of this one thing. This one thing. And that is that they have been forgiven. They have been forgiven. And so when I think when Paul says here, I am the least of the apostle, that I am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. It was not that he had a hard time forgive, uh, knowing that God had forgiven him. He knew that. I think maybe what he was struggling with is forgiving himself of those sins. And that is the title to this sermon, Forgiving Yourself. Forgiving Yourself. <clears throat> is it good advice to forgive yourself? You know, there is a, a psychology of self-esteem out there that basically says you should, never, you, you should always forgive yourself. That self-abasement is bad for your health. That self-condemnation, that guilt. You don't want to ever have any of that. You know, you don't want to have guilt. You don't, you know, self-abasement, uh, angry at yourself. This is terrible. This is bad. And that you should always, regardless of whatever you've done, just forgive yourself and forget it. That's part of the psychology of self-esteem. And I disagree with that because the unwillingness to listen to your conscience is never good advice. The unwillingness to listen to your conscience is never good advice. Look at Romans 2 and verse 14. You know, God gave us a conscience for a reason. Look at Romans 2 and verse 14. It says, For when the Gentiles which have not the law of God, or which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law... These having not the law are a law unto themselves. Notice he's saying they don't have the law, but they have the laws uh, written in their hearts, which show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, the implication is here that one day your conscience is going to have to be dealt with. And that it will be brought, you know, to the knowledge of Jesus Christ that, that in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men. But I believe, you know, the conscience, I believe, like it's been said before, that the last six laws of God are written within the heart of mankind. The laws that tell us how to interact with other people. That they are naturally there. And it's called, you know, a conscience is there that tells us how and what we should do. We know it's wrong to lie, cheat, or steal, or commit adultery, or cheat on our wife. Uh, they are written within the hearts of man. The first four, you've got to be taught how to love God. You know, we would not know that it, we're supposed to keep the Sabbath day unless God said, keep my Sabbath day in the written word of God. But the last six, I believe, are written within the heart of mankind in the form of a conscience. So your conscience can indeed be the source of guilt, self-condemnation, self-abasement. Your conscience can be the source of that. Listen to this quote here. I forget who said this. But think about it. He says, forgive many things in others and nothing in yourself. <laughs> forgive many things in others and nothing in yourself. This, is this, you know, 
I think this is good as advice as long as we follow these rules. Two rules here. One, we should never forgive ourselves until we know what it is that we have done wrong. Until we know what it is that we have done wrong. I have a, you know, a lot of people don't know the, the things that they have done wrong. And I'm basically talking about people without God's spirit, that is. God's, without God's spirit. But I have a, um, a niece, age 16, who has gotten herself pregnant. And I was over there, uh, I think last Sunday, and I was, her and her boyfriend was there, and I was watching them, and they were talking and discussing and just having a good time. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, neither one knows, has the slightest clue that they've done anything wrong. Don't have the foggiest clue that they've done anything wrong. And they will not know it until many, many years later as they mature, and as, as maybe she becomes a single parent and has to rear this child on her own, or maybe as he uh, starts, his, uh, starts another family, and after many years of maturity, he begins to realize how precious children can be. Only then will he really realize the sin that was committed back then. But now, they'll have the slightest clue that what they did was wrong. Therefore, we should never forgive ourselves until we know what it is we have done wrong. Therefore, the ability to forgive ourselves involves the conviction of sin. And that's exactly what God has given you. Conviction of sin. The knowledge of what you have done that's wrong. This is when you should forgive yourself. When you know. And indeed, God has given us a conviction of sin. And the second point is... We should never forgive ourselves until we know that we have been forgiven. And basically that involves knowing that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that he has forgiven you. Now, one of the greatest promises in the Bible was found over in Romans 8 and verse 1. <clears throat> Let's turn there. Romans 8 and verse 1. Because it tells us a lot about forgiving ourselves that's important. It says, there is therefore now, now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ. Here you have a promise and you have conditions. The promise is, there is therefore now no condemnation. And if there is no condemnation, why are we condemning ourselves? But the condition is that those are which are in Christ, and the second thing, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That's the conditions. So the ability to forgive ourselves is based on two conditions. Number one, your position in Christ, the fact that you've been forgiven. I mean, the scripture will say, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect over in the book of Romans? Now, who's gonna do, who is going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Well, a lot of times we do. We condemn ourselves, even though we have been forgiven. We dig up all sins of the past, and we mightily condemn ourselves, and we should not, because we have been given a conviction, and we have been forgiven of our sins. Scripture will say in Romans, who is he that condemns? Who's going to condemn you? Well, a lot of times we condemn ourselves. We condemn ourselves. So with his first point, you cannot earn the right 
to forgive yourself. We wouldn't have a right to forgive ourselves if it were not for the model of Jesus Christ. The fact that Christ comes into your life and he says, I forgive you because I believe in you. And we can put this thing behind us and we can move on and we can get on with your life and you can learn from your mistake and we can move forward. And the second point, condition, the first one is your position in Christ. The ability to forgive yourself is based on Number one, your position in Christ, what Christ has done for you, forgiven you. And the second condition is those who walk, not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That's the second condition. Let's look at 1 John 3 and verse 19. 1 John 3 and verse 19. It says, and hereby, 1 John 3 and verse 19, hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence toward God. Now, verse 21 is great. If our heart don't condemn us. But, verse 20, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. In other words, God knows what's going on in the heart. Sometimes we don't. God is a great heart surgeon. Uh, God works on the heart, and sometimes he makes us feel guilty. And I hope we understand the difference between guilt and self-condemnation. Guilt is godly, I believe. Guilt involves your conscience. There might even be a spirit of guilt that God can work in your life. Guilt speaks to you in correction or with correction. Uh, I remember a long time ago in the seventh grade, I, I did something that was wrong. Uh, in school, I took, there was a, a boy in front of me, and his comb was sticking out of his pants about that far. And he, I knew the guy, and I, 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 slipped, I said, I want to see if I can get that comb out of his pocket without him knowing about it. We were walking down the, the, the hall, and I slipped it out. I thought, yeah, I can do it. I did that. <laughs> I was going to give it back to him, but I never did. And I never could work up the right way to say, hey, buddy, I took your comb. Here, you can have it back now. Uh, but, you know, I, I was uh, feelings of guilt because of that. You know, it comes from, you know, guilt speaks to you with words of correction and tells you what you should do. So guilt is one thing. But self-condemnation, once you have been baptized, once you are in Christ, is of the devil, I believe, self-condemnation. Because self-condemnation destroys the work God is working in you. God says, look, I want to forgive you. I want you to get on with your life. And self-condemnation destroys that, what God is trying to do. Look at <clears throat> Revelation uh, 20, uh, 12 and verse 9 through 10. A lot of God's people have self-condemnation that comes from the pit of hell, I would say, directly from Satan the devil. The kind of self-condemnation where we say, you know, God, God cannot forgive me. I might as well give up. <clears throat> Revelation 12 and verse 9 tells us, And that great dragon which was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceives the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our, bre of, of our brethren is cast down, 
which accuses them before our God day and night. What are we talking about here? We're talking about Satan the devil is the one who makes all of these accusations to God about us. You know, he says, look, God, look at what he's doing. He's done it again. He's sinning again. Now, if he does that to God, what is he able to work in your own mind about yourself? Where do some of these thoughts come from of self-condemnation? You know, and I'm talking to those who have the Spirit of God here. You know, where do these false accusations come from? Well, I think a lot of times they come directly from Satan the devil because he is called the accuser of the brethren. I'll tell you something else I think is inter interesting here is that when Satan comes to God accusing us and saying, look at what he's done, you know, He's telling the truth. We, we really have committed the sin. And it's not like he's lying about what we've done. And I think it's interesting how that God responds. Because God responds with forgiveness. If we repent, God is willing to move on. I just, I just look at that in comparison to us. When someone comes to us with an accusation about someone else, how that we are so eager to believe the worst and to give up on that person. You compare that to the way God is when Satan comes up and says, look, he's done it again. He, he's, he's, he's messed up again. He's sinned again. And God says, I'll forgive him. And let's continue on and grow together. It's quite a difference in the way God responds and the way we respond. <clears throat> so I think that a lot of these accusations come from the devil, a lot of that self-condemnation. In William Backus' book, Telling Yourself the Truth, he will say the average person tells himself 200 lies a day, uh, 200 misbeliefs about himself. He says, and I quote, but please understand the misbeliefs we tell ourselves are directly from the pit of hell. They are hand-engraved and delivered by the devil himself. He is very clever in dishing out misbeliefs. He doesn't want to risk being discovered, so he always appears as if the lie he is telling us is true the lie that we believe is true. So I want to make it clear that there is a big difference between guilt and that self-condemnation because self, for Christians, for those who have the Spirit of God, self-condemnation can lead to the point to where you say, I cannot forgive myself. I will not forgive myself. It can lead to that. Now, the second condition for no condemnation, forgiving yourself, is walking in the spirit and not after the flesh. That's a condition. Notice Luke 6 and verse 37. Luke 6 and verse 37. You know, some people may say, well, I, you know, I, I have a hard time forgiving myself. A very hard time forgiving myself. Well, let's notice this, what the Bible tells us. The Bible says in Luke 6 and verse 37, here, again, we are dealing with promises of God and conditions. Promises and conditions. Judge not that you be not judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you shall be forgiven. Now notice this. The promise is you shall not be judged. The condition is judge not. That's the condition. 
The promise is, you shall not be condemned. The condition is, condemn not. The promise is, you shall be forgiven. The condition is, forgive. So if I'm having a struggle here forgiving myself, I need to look at how I treat other people. If I have this self-condemnation, I need to really consider how I treat other people. Promises and conditions. So as God looks at the condition of our heart, does he find us walking in the Spirit? Another thing that's important is discerning your walk with God. Discerning your walk with God. Look at Galatians 5 and verse 19. Galatians 5 and verse 19. Can you discern your walk with God? I believe so. Uh, Galatians 5 and verse 19. What we're going to look at here is the difference between carnality and conversion. The carnal mind versus the converted mind. And it tells us plainly in discerning our walk, it says now, uh, Galatians 5 and verse 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Now here's how you test yourself, you see, if you're carnal. Uh, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variancy, uh, emulation, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So we discern our walk with God. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, and here we're talking about conversion, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, self-control, that is. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So, you know, looking at this, it's a question of what radiates out of your life. What is coming forth from within. What radiates out of one's life in the area of discerning your walk. Let's look at another verse about forgiving yourself. Look at Mark 11. In verse 25, forgiving yourself. Mark 11. Mark 11, 11 and verse 25, it says, And when you stand praying, forgive. If you have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you of your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive you of your trespasses. Now, where it says... If you have all against any, does that include yourself? Now, you see, a lot of times when, when we, think of, we think of other people, yes, it involves forgiving them, but forgiving yourself. What do you have against yourself? Sins of the past that you hold on to, that you dig up, that you cannot let go. My point is, you've got to forgive yourself in order to be forgiven. In order to be forgiven. It's an obligation to forgive yourself. The person who is willing, unwilling to forgive himself, places himself under the judgment of God. Because if you're not willing to forgive yourself, God will not forgive. You know, there's a verse, you don't have to turn there, in Hebrews 10 and verse 29, it says, Of how much more severe punishment suppose ye shall be thought worthy uh, who have trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant 
by which he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite to the spirit of grace. The word despite means insult. He has insulted the spirit of grace. There's more than one way to insult the spirit of grace, God's grace. One is living an ungodly life. Obviously, that's true. But I think the other way is the unwillingness to forgive yourself. It is an insult to God. An insult. When God, what God has done for you up until this point, it is an insult to not be willing to forgive yourself. Why do we find it hard to forgive ourselves? I think it, it is summed up in a story I'd like to read to you. Some of you may have heard this story before, but I, uh, it's a very moving story. It's entitled, The Martyrdom of Andy Drake. And I think it explains in, in no better way than I can possibly explain it as to why people find it hard to forgive themselves. Listen closely. You may miss something. Because Andy was a sweet, amusing little guy whom everyone liked but harassed. Just because that was the way one treated Andy Drake. He took the kidding well. He always smiled back and with those great big eyes that seemed to say, thank you, thank you, thank you, with each sweeping blink. For us fifth graders, Andy was our outlet. He was our whipping boy. He even seemed to be grateful to pay this special price for membership in our group. Andy Drake don't eat no cake and his sisters don't eat no pie. If it wasn't for the welfare dole, all the Drakes would die. Andy even appeared to like this sing-song mockery of Jack Spratt. Spratt. The rest of us really enjoyed it, bad grammar and all. I don't know why Andy had to endure this special treatment to deserve our friendship and membership in the group. It just evolved naturally, no vote or discussion. I don't recall that it was ever mentioned that Andy's father was in prison or that his mother took in washing and men or that Andy's ankles, elbows and fingernails were always dirty and his coat was way too big. We soon wore all the fun out of that one. Andy never fought back. Snobbery blossoms in the very young, I guess. It's clear now the group's attitude was that it was our right to belong to the group, but that Andy was a member by our sufferance. Despite that, we all liked Andy until the day, until that very moment. He's different. We don't want him, do we? Which one of us said it? I've always wanted to blame Randolph all of these years, but I can't honestly say who spoke those trigger words that brought out the savagery lying dormant but so near the surface in all of us. It doesn't matter who, for the fever which we took up, the cry revealed us all. I didn't want to do what we did. For years I tried to console myself with, with that. Then one day I stumbled on those unwelcome but irrefutable words that convicted me forever. The hottest corner of, hells are, of hell are reserved for those who during a moment of crisis maintain their neutrality. The weekend was to be like the others the group had enjoyed together. After school on Friday, we would meet at the home of one of the members, mine this time, for a camp out in the nearby woods. Our mother, who did most of the preparation for these safaris, fixed an extra pack for Andy, who was to join us after chores. We quickly made camp, mother's apron string forgotten. With individual courage amplified by the group, we were now men against the jungle. The others, the others told me that since it was my party, I should be the one to give Andy the news. Me, I who had long believed that Andy secretly thought a little more of me than he did to others because of the puppy-like way he looked at me, I who often felt him revealing his love and appreciation with those huge wide open eyes, 
I can still plainly see Andy as he came toward me down the long, dark tunnel of trees that leaked only enough of the late afternoon light to kaleidoscope changing patterns on his soiled old sweatshirt. Andy was on his rusty, one-of-a-kind bike, a girl's model with sections of garden hose wired to the rim for tires. He appeared excited and happier than I'd ever seen him. This frail little guy who had been an, ad an adult all of his life, I knew he was savoring the acceptance by the group. The first chance to belong, the first chance to have boy fun and to do boy things. Andy waved to me as I stood in the camp clearing, awaiting him. I ignored his happy greeting. He vaunted off the funny old bike and trotted over toward me, full of joy and conversation. The others, concealed within the tent, were quiet, but I felt their support. Why won't he get serious? Can't he see that, he's not return that I'm not returning his gaiety? Can't he see by now that his babblings aren't reaching me? Then suddenly he did see. His innocent countenance opened even more, leaving him totally vulnerable. His whole demeanor said, it's going to be very bad, isn't it, Ben? Let's have it. Undoubtedly well-practiced in facing disappointment, he didn't even brace for the blow. Andy never fought back. Incredulously, I heard myself say, Andy, we don't want you. Hauntingly vivid still is the sudden quickness with which two huge tears sprang into Andy's eyes and just stayed there. Vivid because of the maddening million returns of that scene in my mind. The way Andy looked at me, frozen for an eternity. What was it? Was it hate? Was it shock? Was it disbelief? Or was it pity for me? Or was it forgiveness? Finally, a little tremor broke across Andy's lip, and he turned without appeal or even a question to make the long, lonely trip home in the dark. As I entered the tent, someone, the last one of us, to feel the full weight of the moment, started the old doggery. Andy Drake don't eat no cake, and his sisters don't. Then it was unanimous. No vote taken, no word spoken, but we all knew. We knew that we had done some, something horribly cruel and wrong. We were swept over by the delay impact of dozens of lessons and sermons. We heard for the first time, in so much as you have done it unto the least of these. In that hushed, heavy moment, we gained an understanding new to us, but fixed in our mind. We had destroyed an image, an individual made in the image of God, with the only weapon for which we had no defense, for which he had no defense and we had no excuse, rejection. Andy's poor attendance in school made it difficult to tell when he actually withdrew, but one day it dawned on me that he was gone forever. I had spent too many days struggling within myself to find a polished and proper way of telling Andy how totally ashamed and sorry I was and am. I know now that to have hugged Andy, to have cried with him, or even to have joined with him in a long silence would have been enough. It may have healed us both. I never saw Andy Drake again. I have no idea where he went, or where he is, or if he is. But to say I haven't seen Andy is not entirely accurate. In the days since that autumn day in the Arkansas woods, I have encountered thousands of Andy Drakes. My conscience places Andy's mask over their face of every disadvantaged person with whom I come into contact. Everyone stares back at me with that same haunting, expectant look that became fixed in my mind that day long ago. The author here, Ben Burton, closes in this book with a personal letter to Andy Drake in hopes that he will one day find it. He says, Dear Andy Drake, the chance you will ever see these words is quite remote, but I must try. 
It is much too late for this confession to purge my conscience of guilt. I neither expect it nor want it to. What I do pray for, my little friend of long ago, is that you might somehow learn and be lifted by the continuing force of your sacrifice. What you suffered at my hand that day and the loving courage you showed, God has twisted, turned, and molded into a blessing. This knowledge may ease the memory of that terrible day for you. I've been no saint, saint, Andy, nor have I done all the things I should and could have done with my life. But what I want you to know is that I have never again knowingly betrayed another Andy Drake, nor, I pray, shall I ever. You know, you read this story and you realize that a person cannot run from their past. They cannot run from the harm or the hurts that they have caused others. You can't run away from it. And you might be encouraged by the words that it's been said that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. These lessons that we have learned. And I think of the Apostle Paul when he says, I am the least of the apostles and I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. The ability to forgive yourself. It's when your actions of the past have harmed, hurt, or destroyed an individual made in the image of God. But God's blessing can and will be on those you have hurt. Because a lot of times these are the ones that we pray about the most in our prayers. Your ability to forgive yourself is hinged on the statement in this story that said, where he said in the personal letter at the end, he said, I want you to know that I have never again knowingly betrayed an Andy Drake, nor I pray shall I ever. It's called repentance. Repentance. And forgiveness of those sins. And God accepts that. And we should forgive ourselves. Turn back in closing to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. It says, <clears throat> chapter 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know, I buried the past when I was baptized. And there's a reason why I wanted to bury the past. Because the past was ugly, and I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to remember the past. But do we dig up the past for observation? Well, no. No, you shouldn't. God has forgiven you. So rejoice in your future. And don't insult God with your past.